This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique, voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! <laughs> Hello again, my beautiful screamers, and welcome, welcome one, welcome all to another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 297, and it's also Pride Month, yay! And to kick things off, we're going to pick a movie that you might not expect me to pick for Pride Month. We're going to be talking about Guillermo del Toro's Oscar-winning film, The Shape of of water and joining me is actress, singer, and part-time supervillain, Ms. Maya Murphy. But before we go any further, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Patrick Walsh. Hi, hi, hey. And for the past 10 years, I have been your guide through the weird and wonderful world of horror movies, but you get to see them through my very gay little eyes. Lucky you. Now, before we go a step further, I just want you to be aware of something. Do you remember at the end of last episode when I was really upset and I said that I bit my tongue and then I talked funny for the rest of the episode? Since then, in the week since then, I have bit my tongue in the same space at least four more times. And when I say four more times, I'm talking about hardcore chomps, like hardcore I just bit my tongue so hard that now I can see through time kind of bites. And that's not counting like the 20, 25 little teeny, teeny bites that I keep giving myself every day. So it is swollen and it is painful. And I am trying to speak as cautiously as possible so that the words don't come out weird because my tongue on one side is like the size It's all swollen up like a balloon. It's not cute. And I just kind of bit it again. Ow. So, no, Patrick hasn't had a cocktail. Patrick just got a big old tongue. You're like, no kidding. The amount of yapping this motherfucker does? Good lord. Of course, this tongue must be huge. Stop. Stop talking about my tongue. All right, listen. Hey, happy Pride, everybody. Yay! 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 And what a weird and wonderful, strange, exciting Pride it's turning out to be. Changes in the air, revolution is in the air, and it's truly something. Now, you're probably wondering, all right, the shape of water. Why? Why are you doing this for Pride Month? Well, we'll get into that in the actual interview, but here's the thing. I picked this movie all the way back in January because I've been wanting to talk about it for quite a while, and I wanted to talk about it during Pride Month. So I set that all up, and I recorded this session with Maya, ooh, well over 10 days ago. And the world was a different place 10 days ago. So things that are lacking in the conversation that I have with Maya is because it's from 10 days ago. It's not quite reflecting what's going on right this second because, well, things are changing so quickly and there's so much news every day. It's very hard to keep up. But still, if anything is sounding a little discordant or a little too chipper, a little too flip, that's why. It was from 10 days ago. But I picked The Shape of Water because if you look past the surface— If you look closer at it, it's not just, you know, a romantic spin on a monster movie, which so many people wrote it off as. When you look deeper, 
this movie is queer as fuck. And we'll get into what that means when we start talking about the movie. And I thought about, I thought about bumping it because I had to say, well, how does this tie in to Black Lives Matter? And once again, when you look closer, it sure as hell does. That's all I'm going to say for now because I just bit my tongue yet again. So it's time for me to stop yapping, bring on Maya Murphy, and let's take a closer look at the shape of water. But first, let's take a listen to the trailer, shall we? Oh, yes, we shall. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. The natives in the Amazon worshiped him like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. You need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Hmm. And joining me for this first leg of the Pride Month celebration of queer cinema and the people that make that, well, she's a returning guest. I know her. You know her. You better love her. If you don't, go kick her ass. She Kick your ass, rather. <laughs> she's a super talented actress. And singer, one of my cohorts over on Damn You, Uncle Lewis. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and my GNCs, wherever you may be, please welcome back to Scream Queens, Miss Maya Murphy. Hi, nice to be back. Hooray, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Are we doing gay pride this year or are we doing gay wrath? I think it's gay wrath over at my house. Oh, yeah. It's wrath. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, over on the Gay Lords of Darkness podcast last year. They're like, okay, June is a queer pride month. 
July is Queer Revenge Month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so in for that. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Queer Revenge yeah. for my birthday in July. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know Maya Murphy, Maya Murphy, why don't you please explain to the world who is Maya Murphy? What's going on? Oh, what you well, do? Do girl. That's that's a uh, that's a lot. I was not prepared for this question. Uh, I'm a massive nerd. I live in New Jersey with my very fluffy cat. I'm an actor. I do stage and screen, and uh, I play a lot of video games. I guess. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. Yay! Yay! Thank you. Now, the movie that we're talking about is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. And the reason I I picked this movie a long time ago, I asked Maya to do this like in January because I wanted to make sure that we did this for Pride Month. And I know a lot of you are confused by this choice, but we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. One of the times Maya was on and we talked about the movie The Lure, I was really impressed with her knowledge of fantasy and and folklore and things like that. And she's going to see things in this movie that I don't. You brought stuff to the table that I would never come up with myself last time you were here. So that's why you're here. So you better show up. Oh, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to use my liberal arts degree for the only thing it's good for. Swatting flies. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I'm going to say this now. For some reason, I have a block about saying Guillermo del Toro. My mouth doesn't want to say it right. No, I have a similar block. Uh, personally, I'm going to blame my Boston upbringing. So words with R and L are very difficult for me. That drink that is half lemonade and half iced tea is a half and half. And I will not say the other thing because I can't. Um, so, yeah, I end up saying Guillermo because I'm from Boston. Uh, so GDT tends to be what I slip into. I have a great deal of respect for him and his true name. And I'm not trying to be a crummy white person by skipping over his name. I'm just really bad at it and I'm working on it. It's just when I say the whole thing. If I say the first half or the second half, it's fine. I put them together. It comes at Guillermo del Toto. Interesting. And Guillermo del Toto blesses the rain down in Africa. He's not familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let me just paint it, but we're not going to play the game this time around to try to summarize the plot. Because I think it, this movie was nominated for 13 Academy Awards. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Scenic Design, Best Music. You should have seen it by now, or you at least know the basic story of it, right? Should have seen it by not- now. <laughs> I hadn't. I hadn't seen it by now. It had been on my list, but I hadn't seen it, and I was thrilled to be reminded. No? Okay, good, good, good. You're welcome. Thank you. I saw this movie in the theaters the day of the second Women's March. Oh, wow. I had overslept or something. Something happened. Like it was a subway problem, something. I got to Times Square so late and it was just packed and there was no trains going anywhere near it. Oh, you couldn't get anywhere on the street. Once you were on the surface, you were stuck there. Yeah. And I said, by the time I get there, it's going to be over. And I couldn't go back either. It was the same problem going home. So I was like, "Eh, it's hot. Let's go to a movie. Yeah. Seeing this movie, The Day of the Women's March, just kind of opened my mind up to a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't have seen. Otherwise, I spent most of the movie crying, even though nothing was happening, just because I know that Guillermo likes to work with magical realism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who don't know what magical realism is, could you definition of that or, or what you what you would say magical realism is? I feel like it's something that I, that I understand well. And then if I have to explain, I'm like, well, it's it's heightened. It's like real. It's like, yeah. Magic. It's, yeah. Like, I, I know it when I see it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Patrick from the future chiming in for just a minute because I realized it was incredibly rude of me to put Maya on the spot like that to define magical realism when I didn't even have a definition myself. And then I went on along with the rest of the interview without actually looking up 
the real definition for you. So I'm doing that right now. And according to Encyclopedia Britannica, magic realism or magical realism is a chiefly Latin American narrative strategy that is characterized by the matter-of-fact inclusion of fantastic or mythical elements into seemingly realistic fiction. Although the strategy is known in the literature of many cultures and many ages, the term magical realism is a relatively recent designation, first applied in the 1940s by Cuban novelist Alejo Carpentier, who recognized this characteristic in much of Latin American literature. Thank you. Back to Patrick and Maya. Well, it, it's Guillermo de Toro's signature style. It's this blending of fantasy and reality, such as Pan's Labyrinth is the perfect example of that. You have this horrible right. thing going on with the war, and then this wonderful fairyland. They're all these things are coexisting together, but what's real, what's not? And and the shifting of that line. Well, well, I know this part's real, but well, this part that the eh. yeah, and how the two two worlds start to affect each other. That sort of thing. This plays with that. It's the same sort of a thing. And I also know Guillermo del Toro likes to make. Endings of films, which are either the happiest sad ending ever or the saddest happy ending ever, either depending on how you look at it. Either way, you're going to be a mess. So I sat there watching the movie and all these these themes that we're going to be talking about are hitting me and hitting me and hitting me and hitting me. And then it hit me. <sighs> the magic can never stay in these things. Frosty the Snowman has to go home. E.T. has to go home. So I was very upset. And so whenever I would get really happy, I'd be like, oh, fuck. So I'd be, I'd be wrapped up in the magic and then reality would hit. My, I'm not going to do the 30 seconds thing. Why don't you give a quick summary of the basic plot just to catch people up? Sure. Um, our hero works as a cleaning lady at Stargate NASA and uh, discovers that the this government has a fish man from South America and is treating him poorly. And she forges a relationship with him and helps him escape. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, and they fall in love. They fall in love and it's so sweet. That was the other thing people were really hung up on. Like, oh, it's disgusting. It's bestiality. <sighs> I heard about the fish fucking in this movie for a year, and I was extremely disappointed by the amount of fish fucking I got versus the amount of things I heard. It's nothing. It's beautiful. It's a it's beautiful, beautiful shot. Scene. It's beautiful. And all of y'all are monsters who don't understand. You see no fucking. They're just naked. There's no fucking. There's no fish fucking. I take it back. There's fucking in the movie. They talk about it. They talk. No, about there's it. human fucking in the movie. Oh, oh, is that was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it. I'm putting big air quotes for all y'all yeah. listeners, but straight fucking does happen. Uh, nothing to write home about. Horrific scene. Horrific scene. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's amazing, but we'll talk about it in a minute. I just love this. This such a wonderful sense of magic from the very first frame of this movie. If I spoke about it. If I did, what would I tell you? I wonder. Would I tell you about the time? It happened a long time ago, it seems, in the last days of a fair prince's reign. Or would I tell you about the place? A small city near the coast, but far from everything else. Princess without voice. Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. 
the camera swooping to this apartment that for some reason is flooded. Oh, we have such as furniture floating by, knickknacks are floating by. It's like the by. end of Titanic, but it's happy and peaceful. I felt like I was in Rapture. <laughs> rapture, yes. Bioshock, yeah. I felt that several times. There's a scene where they're uh, where where this where the fish man is kept. I would not have been surprised if a big daddy had come out and I had to shoot it, <laughs> or, or or the little sisters oh. had come by. Oh, come on, that's my daddy. <laughs> There's always a girl. There's always a lighthouse. There's always a man. Sometimes he's a fish. <laughs> Sometimes he's a fish. And he's not even a fish. He's an amphibian. Our, our scientist character says, uh, talks about how he's two separate breathing apparatuses. And, and then Michael Shannon goes like a mudskipper. Okay. Why would you take a pause? Also, we didn't talk about the cast because the cast in this is phenomenal. Phenomenal. I love Richard Jenkins oh so God. much. I love him so much. And he reminded me of my friends. And I was like, wait, isn't Richard Jenkins straight? They should have given this to a gay person. But he was so good. I couldn't be mad. He nailed the whole feeling Ugh. of being gay, not older gay, in 1962. Because the movie does play, take place in 1962. And why this is important now, it's like it's taking place in Baltimore just before the Cuban Missile Crisis, during the race riots in Alabama. So much is mirroring what's going on now. It's, it's right in this like liminal time period where things are about to have this massive change. And especially Richard Jenkins character, like no longer fits in that world and he doesn't know where to go. And it's heartbreaking. He doesn't fit in that world and he never fit in it anyway. He never fit in it, but he could, he could pass for a minute. He's fantastic. And it's Sally Hawkins is our lead, Eliza, and she is mute. She cannot speak and is delightful. She's Magical, amazing. ethereal, but yet grounded performance and octavia spencer is amazing and i feel like this is we're gonna tangent all day but i feel like watching her in snowpiercer has like permanently done her wrong in my mm -hmm. brain because she's delightful but the the lines they give her in snowpiercer pigeonhole her in this little racist mm. caricature and it's really frustrating because i i expect her to slide into that in other films now which is stupid because she's amazing but in snowpiercer when the poor people get up to the room where they're turning the bugs into bars she goes how about some fried chicken i'm like what are you doing movie wow uh, but her her performance in this is lovely and thoughtful and three-dimensional and it's great. I read a quote from her, which I thought was fantastic as well. She said, first of all, when she, when Guillermo asked her to do it, she said, I would have played a desk if it asked me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he calls, oh, you yeah. say yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that she loved most about the script is that since Eliza, our main character, cannot speak, a huge portion of the dialogue is either coming from Richard Jenkins or Octavia Spencer, which means it's coming from either a gay man or a black woman, both of people whose voices would have been completely suppressed in this world in 1962, as opposed to now. Exactly. But we're also establishing that uh, because she is mute, she is part of this other class in 1962. Her friends are black and gay. That's the only people she's allowed to have in her circle. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to get get into this movie is because what dawned on me when I was watching it somewhere in the, you know, as we're getting into the third row, I was like, oh, my God, this movie, even though there's nothing super gay about it. Yes, there's a gay character in it. I'm like, this movie is queer in its sensibilities because you have this tyrannical monster in Michael Shannon. Awful, awful on all counts. And 
the people that have to rise up to fight him, to have to break their own codes and like go to this next level into this new world to fight this monster and defeat this monster are women, the disabled, queers, people of color, immigrants, and scientists. All of those people were the, are the people that Trump loves to attack. Del Toro completely encapsulated America right now in this movie. It's such a lovely group of heroes. It was so exciting to watch. And what I loved about her performance, the way the character is written, the character of Eliza, is that, yes, she is disabled and she's alone, yet the character is not lonely. And yes, this character sees herself, as we learn later, she sees herself as broken. But it's not about her being sad. She's never really sad. She's alone, but she's surrounded by people that love her. Like, everyone she comes into contact with loves her. And... She's smart. Like at one point, somebody says, oh, well, you're the one who's you've got a degree. So like she's educated, but she's working as a cleaner and she's not desexualized. Even without the man, no. she has scheduled sens sensuality in her daily regimen, which I applauded. Again, that term people have like, that was disgusting. Well, you shouldn't watch the new girl, girl masturbate. First off, we're establishing she still has needs because it's so easy to desexualize yeah. the disabled. So we're opening with that. No, she's a human person with needs and wants and it brings in my first obvious visual metaphor of eggs there's eggs everywhere and i want to talk about them uh but she uses an egg timer to time her morning masturbation in the water now if you read anything or ever seen fern gully you know that water is mm -hmm. sexuality and we are also going to play with that a whole lot um but no her morning masturbation time is in the tub and she times it with an egg timer three minutes let's go done and now i can go to work i mean good Good for you, three minutes, girl. Exactly. I said, I was, this is how the movie opens. I thought it was great. But it told, told, it told, great. told me who this person is. Like, she's practical. She's on a schedule. She's like, okay, I'm, I'm taking care of my needs. And then she makes food for her. And then she brings some to Richard Jenkins because she's taking care of other people's needs mm -hmm. as well. One of the most arresting visuals in this for me, and I don't know why, it's while she's going to work. Well, first of all, there's a chocolate factory on fire. The chocolate factory is on fire, and some of the first lines we get out of Richard Jenkins are about if, when when he was young, he would have fucked more. Yeah. I, what would you have told your younger self? Uh, I said, take better care of your teeth and fuck a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what the line was, but he also mentions water pipes, so we're like, we're getting into exactly where this movie is going immediately. But uh, the burning of the chocolate factory, I think, really touches into the magical realism. It's where we're burning down the Willy Wonka fantasy. We're can't have good things. Also, just what's where we are, too. Like, the, this, this world, shit's coming. The fire is burning. It's yeah. just over there right now. It's not here yet. There's a fire. The chocolate factory. Do you smell that? Oh, my. Toasted cocoa. Tragedy and delight. Hand in hand. Burning chocolate in the air. It's, it's, it's tragedy and delight. All rolled into one. <laughs> Welcome to this movie. Welcome to this movie. That's where yeah. we're going. Yeah. Yay. But yeah, that's just a chocolate factory burning. And as as I was watching this movie, while well, the world is actually burning outside, again, hit really hard. Oh, but as she's going to work and she's waiting at the bus stop in this idyllic 1960s city set. But in the distance on the horizon, you can see that the sky is burning orange because of the fire. This distant fire is burning just over the horizon. They're not here yet, but they're coming. There's a man sitting next to her. On the park bench, on the on the bus bench, holding an enormous birthday cake 
with one slice. And there's no cover, no on, cover the on the cake. And one slice <laughs> taken out, and he's really sad. What story is happening here? What story is happening with that man? <laughs> what a fascinating bid for an extra. Just like, I was just so wrapped up in that. Did you catch the name of the company that you worked for? No. Occam. Oh, no. Like the razor. Yeah. Boo. I say boo because I'm enthusiastic and that's great. You thought I said Arkham for a minute. You're like, what? Really? What? Arkham? <laughs> no, I, I was processing that. I was. And I went, he doesn't have my accent. No, he didn't say Arkham. He said Arkham. <laughs> I thought it was a shaving needs company. <laughs> yeah, so she's on the night crew cleaning up at this weird military complex that does things we don't really know about or understand because we don't need to. No, no, you're just a cleaner. You don't need to know what we do here. Better off, you're better off not knowing what we do here. <laughs> yeah. You get underground and it's like yeah. massive. It's endless. It's video game creepy. <laughs> Those always going. Yeah, there's a lot of weird force perspective stuff going on, and there's pipes going everywhere. Uh, and she's on the night cleaning crew with Octavia Spencer, who, like you were, like you mentioned earlier, does a lot of our storytelling, and that she lets us know what Eliza has to mm-hmm. say in their conversations. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And between Eliza and Zelda, is Zelda. Zelda, Zelda, right, because she's Zelda Delilah. Every scene that they have together is com- almost always breaking the Bechdel test. They're failing the Bechdel test because Zelda's always bitching about her husband. I made Brewster pigs in the blanket tonight before leaving. Boy, he just ate them up. No thank yous, no yum yums, not a feed. Is as silent as a grave. But if farts are flattery, honey, he'd be Shakespeare. And then I get home and I make him breakfast. Eggs, bacon, and butter toast. I butter the man's toast a lot. Mm-hmm. Both sides. As if he was a child. And I don't even get a thank you. You'd be grateful because you're an educated woman, but my Bruce, all he had going for him was animal magnetism back in the day. <laughs> Hadn't worked in a while. Always bitching about but, her husband. But she she does it in a way where she's trying to sound nice, but you can tell he's driving her up a fucking wall. That's when I realized, okay, she, while Eliza herself might be alone, she is, by no stretch of the imagination, lonely. All the people in her life are profoundly lonely. Oh, and it hurt my heart. My, even even little Russian science guy, I'm like, he's a, he's a million miles from home all by himself. Hi, Patrick from the future. I did not get into this character well enough here describing him, but this character of Dimitri, a.k.a. Bob, is a scientist who works at this company that Eliza and Zelda do, but it turns out he's really a Russian spy who is supposed, who is supposed to be not only taking care of the creature, but getting the information and ult- for the Russian government and ultimately killing it for the Russian government. But the more he gets to know the creature, the more he realizes he can't kill this thing so he's torn between this job that he has this duty to take care of this creature and also his homeland and his mission so this guy is just completely isolated and like i said a million miles from home it was so effective it hurt to watch like in a good way yeah they're not jamming it down your throat either like look at how sad these people are it's like these are people who are putting on the good face, put good face because it's 1962 and it's America and everything's great. This is how it's supposed to be. That's the only choice you have, so you better go put that uh-huh. face on, buddy. You know, I did 
Fido on the show a couple of weeks ago. And a lot of these same themes. I love are, coming, Fido. are coming up in this. It's just put this. They, we have this idea of what America's supposed to be like and how we're all supposed to be. And if we don't, if we don't fit it to that, these are the people who don't fit. Yeah, then then there's no space for you. So you have better fit. Who aren't smiling all the time and in their perfect homes with modular furniture, eating gelatinous desserts and brushing their teeth with chlorophyll and getting radiation burns from the TVs. Oh, okay. So we meet Michael Shannon, who comes in with a big black dick metaphor. Yes, he's carrying a cattle prod. He carries it most of the movie. Do you remember what he called it? Oh, it stuck with me, but I don't have it. He's like, hey, hey, don't touch that. He said, look, 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 but don't touch. It's a, it's a. It's an Alabama howdy-do. Look, don't touch. That lovely dingus right there is an Alabama howdy-do. Molded grip handle, low current, high voltage, electric shock cattle prod. No, you're, you're learning about him. That's where the riots are going on right now. That's what's burning in this world right now. Because you see on the TV several times, you know, the race things going on around the country. And like, that's. That, that's what he would use to be poking black people with if he wasn't working right now. Yeah. He's a monster. He comes in. He's a monster. He's a very effective monster. No, he comes into a bathroom when uh, Eliza and Zelda are cleaning. And he has this. You learn everything you need to know about him between him putting down his kettle prod and him peeing with his hands on his hips. With them still in the He actually says, no, you, <laughs> with them in you can stay. Which is just one of the many power games he likes to play with people throughout the movie. You know, like certain people, when they grab your hand, they shake it really hard and they won't let go. Oh, yeah. They, they, they do the Trump thing where they pull you off your balance. Or, you know, when you're, when you're at a table with somebody and you keep moving your stuff further and further away, taking up more space. I don't know anybody who does like that <coughs> either. <coughs> power game. <laughs> I think you got a little, a little tickle in your throat there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's a racism hairball in there. Uh, and he's got this his own code of ethics. A code of ethics about when to wash his hands before and after he's touched his dick. You do, you do it before or you do it after. You don't do it both because that's a sign of weakness. That's not at all how germs work, but that's not what's important that's in this not, movie. No. So we'll just it's leave power. it alone for it's now. It's power because it's like, oh, did, if it was a man in the room and he had brought it up, it would have been to be like, you're not doing it right. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Just everything out of his mouth. It's just that whole mindset. And my dad's not a monster, but my dad is very similar to this guy. Did you catch the book he was reading later in the movie? Power of Positive Thinking. Power of Positive Thinking. Even the monster is given these little seeds of insecurity. Guillermo del Toro is so thorough in building wants and needs for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course... Michael Shannon is going to hate this creature that he found in a river in the Amazon. A river in the Amazon is what I just said, as opposed to the Amazon River. A river in the, I mean, maybe you're speaking, maybe you were shortening for the Amazon rainforest. Let's go with that. And it was a smaller tributary in the Amazon rainforest. He bought this creature on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) And he hates And the shipping was delayed. And he's brought it back here and it's just- (laughs) He just hates it. it. It's everything that he hates. It's different. He doesn't understand it. So I want to kill it. And he's like giving the creature a hard time about the noise he makes when he shocks it with the cattle prod. He says, is that you begging? This is what scares you, huh? Well, gee, you should be used to it by now. Yeah. 
There you go again, making that god awful sound. Is that you crying, huh? Is that what it is? Are you hurting? Or maybe. Maybe you'd like to get another bite. Go ahead. I can't tell. I mean, are you begging? As to me, it's just the worst fucking noise I ever heard. He's frustrated that the the character can't speak yeah. English. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sorry. Well, you know, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. Because, you know, we're made in the image of God and he doesn't look like us. Oh, him going on the image of God rant with Zelda and Eliza was uncomfortable. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? I wouldn't know, sir, what the Lord looks like. Well, human, Zelda, he looks like a human, like me. Or even you. Maybe a little more like me, I guess. Uh, because God looks like me. And, and maybe, well, like and me or like you. A little more like maybe me, I guess. You. Probably more like me. Oh, you fucking prick. You fucking prick. Oh, you f- but then you realize it's not just a prick. Mm. This man is evil. Evil. He's evil, He evil, goes home evil. to his perfect little house. It's like the perfect 50s house with two kids and the blonde wife all, like there with the apron and the, and the- With the most outrageous cartoon hair. And he looks at her, he's like, I might buy a car. And she's like, really, honey? A Cadillac? Here's my boobs. I like my women's silent. Oh, oh, okay. We skipped. We skipped skipped something. We skipped a lot. So when we first meet, or right after we meet Michael Shannon, the creature bites off two of his fingers. And that's when Eliza and Zelda get sent into the room to go clean. Fortunately, not his gun finger or his pussy finger, because it's the two things that he's worried about. I mean, I don't know what he's doing with that pussy finger. That sex scene was uh, not tempting. Um... But then he gets his fingers reattached and he says, well, the doctors don't know if it's going to take or not. So in the sex scene with his wife, he's trying to cover her mouth with his hand and she's trying to go, no, honey, your your dying fingers smell too bad. Please move your hand. Like she's not upset at being silenced, but could you do it with the less hand? And he's also hand, hurting please? her and she's telling him, you're hurting me. He's just, that's why he's putting his hand away. He's like, I don't want to hear it. Be quiet. Be quiet. Like, quiet. Oh, 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 Richard. Sweetie, sweetie, your, um, your, your hand is bleeding. I'm sorry, I was stunned. Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. Don't talk. I want you in silence. 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 And that's I don't want to hear it. That's one of his obsessions, is why he's all of a sudden fixated on Eliza all the time because she's quiet. What? The perfect woman. She'll never complain she's and make a noise. Yes, yeah, she's a cleaning woman. She's. He asks her later, though, are you entirely mute or do you like squat? <sighs> You know, I can't figure it out myself. You're not much to look at, but go figure. I keep thinking about you. When you say you're mute, are you entirely silent or do you squawk a little? Something you squawk, not pretty. Hmm? I just want you to know, I don't mind those scars. I don't mind that you can't speak either. When you come right down to it, I like it a lot. Kind of gets me going. 
Icky, bad, monster, evil, bad. And it just gets worse as it goes along. But it just, again, reflecting things today, it's like you have that image of what the American man is supposed to be, but he is literally rotting from the inside. Because <sighs> those fingers ain't taken and he's not doing anything about it. They just start to smell and they're no, oozing across the turn and black. So yeah. Bad. And it's driving, he's, he's got, yeah. The blacker fingers get well, even to the point where his uh, subordinates comment on it, like people who would be fired for criticizing him, go, ah, "Are you sure those fingers are doing okay? They they smell something mm-hmm. fierce, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gross, gross." Oh, so a creature bites off Michael Shannon's fingers. So we send in uh, Eliza and Zelda into the tank room, and Eliza Eliza gets to meet him, and it's very yeah. exciting. I did enjoy, there's a couple of two references that I enjoyed in this. One of us was when uh, they're cleaning, the women are there to mop up the blood and Zelda is complaining. She's like, I can do puke. <laughs> I can work with pee. I can even work with poop. I'm like, you can make a pie out of poop. We know that. <laughs> and later on after, when things go down, when things start to get crazy and they're being investigated for this theft that's happened of, of the asset, as they keep saying. And Michael Shannon says, Ugh. Why am I interviewing the help? <laughs> <laughs> and they cut to her. She's like polishing her Academy Award. Like, what? <laughs> what, what was that? What did you say? Come again, on him. Mm-hmm. We found, yeah. So Eliza finds Michael Shannon's fingers and his wedding mm-hmm. ring. And returns it to them in a bag with mustard in it because that's all they had. Because they didn't get to have lunch. <laughs> she she saves, she, she, she saves his fingers. She's the only, like, she's, all she does is try to help people. And he lashes out at her for not having a Ziploc bag in 1962. Mm-hmm. He was going to yell at her anyway. He was going to yell at yeah. her anyway. Yeah. But so, yeah, she gets a glimpse of the creature and little by little, this relationship starts forming. And she's, since she only speaks in sign, she realizes she brings him food because they're mistreating him. Egg. She brings him an egg and she shows him the sign for egg. And, you know, tapping into my favorite visual metaphor, ah, second favorite, uh, this movie, when lady fishes want to make more fishes, they lay their eggs in front of the man. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't quite put my finger on the egg thing. I'm like, it's obviously meaning something. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like that episode of Futurama where she's like, well, I lay my eggs and then you fertilize them. And we're back to the Lord. <laughs> or Atlanta, depending. Um. <laughs> Yeah, because I can't, I was because they said I know there's tons of egg symbolism, but all I was getting was like rebirth, rejuvenation, and I said that's no, not right, that's no, not right. No. But that no, no that's it. it's not symbol- she's, she's laying her eggs in front of him, and she like keeps laying more and more eggs and giving. It's him not more symbolism. Eggs. It's life. It's science. That's why I couldn't <laughs> find anything. They're just wonderful magical scenes between the. But we saw, we didn't mention Doug Jones. Doug motherfucking Jones. Jones. Do you do you have time for a, a short Doug Jones story? You can Please cut do. it if you want. That's what we're here for. Uh, so a friend of mine is a horror star. He is Art the Clown and Terrifier, mm-hmm. and uh, he's amazing. David uh, Howard Thornton is a lovely, lovely person. And he was at a horror convention and posted a picture from the green room of him and Doug Jones. And just immediately, my my first reaction was to comment in all caps, did you tell him how much I love him? And not thinking that Maybe they're friends on Facebook now. Uh, so I post this comment, and then Doug Jones liked it. <laughs> and I yeah. died. I got to meet him years ago at a, <laughs> at a Hard Hound weekend. This was ages, ages ago. I wasn't doing the show yet. 
and I don't even think Pan's Labyrinth had come out yet. I was aware of who he was. And this was back when horror conventions were still new. So when after mm. everything was done, you could hang out with the celebrities at the bar in the hotel because they'd be there because they weren't going to be mobbed. I had a lovely, I had a lovely conversation go. with him about Bill Irwin. But because he's trained, because both, you know, Doug Irwin is trained in mime. And so that's where the subject of Bill Irwin came up. We had a lovely conversation with him. And then we made out. No, we didn't. <laughs> he knows, he knows how much I love him. That's, a, which that's is important. Fine. Yep. That's important. So he is lovely and he's also looking a lot like Abe Sapien. But, you know, if it's your design, you can pull it from movie mm-hmm. to movie. Sure. It's so. a shared universe, whatever. No. Well, Abe Sapien likes rotten eggs and the amphibian creature likes boiled eggs. He also likes cat heads, but that's not, we're not there yet. Well, he wasn't really committed to eating the rest of that cat. Uh, he was like, I'm hungry. Is this it? Is this my food? Well, the other kitties, I'm fine. You're fine. It's rare in a movie where you can kill a cat and I don't turn on the movie. Yes. Big agree. I was horrified when that happened because he accidentally eats. Well, he doesn't accidentally. He, he winds up alone in a room with one of Richard Jenkins' cats. The cat's hissing at him and she's just. It's like, okay, I'm jump. Didn't know. He didn't know no better. Didn't know any better. And Richard Jenkins forgives him. So yeah. it's And then, fine. The ne- then one of the uh, scenes a few later, he's petting one of the cats. He, he learned. And Richard Jenkins is like, don't play with the cats. <laughs> but he learned. He learned. <laughs> he learned. He learned. He learned. It's like, le- yes. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. If you're going to, if you're going to hurt a cat in a movie, you better do a really good job with it because I will turn oh, yeah. the movie yeah. off. There's wonderful magical things happening with them. And meanwhile, this, oh, this, oh my gosh, all this plot line with Richard, Je- Richard Jenkins is fabulous. The whole pie plot line. Oh, the the pie and the, the jello. I also want to talk about jello, another metaphor in it's our film. It's made from hooves. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not made from hooves. It's made from bones and hide. But that's not the point. That's not the sexy way to talk about it. Look, to Mr. Burns, uh, I've been vegetarian since I was nine years hooves. old. I've been explaining this know, for 20 but years. Mr. Burns said it was. It just sounds uh, funnier. It's made from hooves. Would you like a gelatinous dessert? It's made from hooves. <laughs> mm. But that's also how you don't upset children. You're like, well, it's like eating horses' fingernails. No, it's all the pieces that aren't meat. <laughs> they they, they okay. blend them down. But no, I want to talk about jello. What is jello? It's a suspended liquid. Oh, boom. Oh, boom. Oh, boom. But also we double dip on the metaphor because when Richard Jenkson tries to sell his ad painting there, well, one, the family's not happy enough because he's so alone. Uh, But two, it's the wrong color because his work isn't right. Green. They want the gelatin to be green now. I was told red. New concept. That's the future now. Green. Oh, and they want them happier. The family. Happier? Mm. Happier. The father looks like he just discovered the missionary position. Child. Well, uh, what are they supposed to be happy about? The client wanted photographs. I sold them on this. It's too bad. This is nice work. It is nice, isn't it? I think it's one of my best. And the future is green. The future is green. The future is green, and Michael Shannon and his picture perfect family eat green jello. And we also have a green light on the man with the birthday cake. The future is green, and it's sad. It's teal. I I love that Giles, uh, Richard Jenkins' character, has a has a boy crush on the guy who works at the diner selling pies, and I just kept wanting to sing Taylor. The key lime boy. Oh no 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 no! If you're selling pie at a diner, you got to do most happy fella. 
which as we know is not full of happy fellows. But yeah, yeah, he's got it. She, she keeps dragging Eliza to this pie shop for key lime pie, and this key. Uh, <laughs> but when he goes back after he doesn't sell his ad, he doesn't get the green pie. He gets a different pie because his his little racist pie crush says, "Well, it's it's not key lime pie, but you know, it's pretty good." He doesn't get the pie of the future. No, no. Well, the pie from the future was apparently disgusting because it did not look like key lime. No, it looked like some nasty cool whip pie. No, it was like that was glow in the dark pie. That was no good. No, dark, dark green. I'm like, no, ooh, that was made, it's made from scope. <laughs> it's a nice little flavor. It's fine. <laughs> but he keeps going back there and he thinks he's found a connection. And the younger gays don't get this scene. What a huge risk that guy just took. It is entirely possible. By just touching another man's hand in public like that, you could go to jail for public indecency or, or, or soliciting even. And then your name is printed in the paper and you are ruined. Oh, no, he, he it's a miracle he got out unharmed from from that scene. That was like terrifying to watch because first off, the, the pie crush is saying these things like, oh, you're educated and I can tell you're educated. And he comes around the side of the counter to sit next to him and talk to him. And, and Giles is like, yes, a connection. I'm getting it. And he touches his hand in public. And then everything goes to shit. For me. For me? We don't get many like you in here. You seem very educated and I like talking to you. The, the, the thing is, that's the the only reason that I come in here is the conversation. And? Pie's matter fine too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no key lime, but it's good. You know, I work alone. And uh, my best friend's not much of a conversationalist. You see, that's part of being the job here. It's like being a bartender. You serve people pie, you listen to the problems, you get to know them. Know you better. What the hell are you doing, old man? Oh, oh, oh. He yeah. yanks his hand away, tells him to not come back. A cute young black couple comes in. I'm like, oh no, no, this isn't going to go well. Leave the diner, black couple. And then he's like, they, they try to sit at the counter. Hey, no, 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 not the counter. Take out only. You can't sit there. You want something, you order, you take it out. There's empty. The, the counter's empty. all reserved all day. You don't sit down. Y'all come back now, you hear? And racist pie man says, those are all reserved. You can have food to take out. They're not even allowed to sit in a booth or a table at the back. They're not allowed in the diner at all. And Giles leaves and he leaves his hard work for art there. And he's not welcome back because this is a family place. You don't need to talk to them like that. You should go too. And don't come back. This is a family restaurant. And he wipes the rest of the pie off his tongue with a napkin. Yeah. Fuck you, fuck your pie. Yeah. But once upon a time, that was how you were expected to be. Gay men were supposed to uh, just be alone, especially older ones. Because when I came out, people were like, oh, are you sure you want to do that? It's such a lonely life. It used to be. Yeah. It used to be. And this movie really captured that. And he's just pining for his youth, lost in his TV musicals. And it's, it's tragic. And it's sad. No, it, it's hard. I'm all, but on the, other, on the other hand, I'm also glad they didn't give him a, a boyfriend at the end of it. Like, he didn't get a magical boyfriend in the last row. What we didn't mention in the scene prior to this is that 
it's gotten to the point where Eliza knows that the company is planning on killing the creature, and she's come up with this plan to get him out, and she approaches Giles, Richard Jenkins, to help her in this scheme, and he is not on board. He's hurrying on his way out the door to meet his pie boy crush for this scene that we just heard, but she is pulling him and trying to make him stay, but he won't listen, and she forces him, forces him. She holds him down and beats him up, and she's like, listen, just repeat everything I'm signing to you. Get him out? What are you talking about? No, absolutely not. Because it's breaking the law, that's why. Probably breaking the law just talking about it. Oh, he's alone. Oh. Now, does this mean that whenever we go to a Chinese restaurant, you want to save every fish in the tank? So what if he's alone? We're all alone. The loneliest thing you've ever seen. Well, you just said it, right? You just said it. You called it a thing. It's a thing. It's a freak. I can understand you. Calm down. God, calm down. All right, I, w- I will repeat it to you. What am I? I move my mouth like him. I make no sound like him. What does that make me? All that I am, all that I've ever been, brought me here to him. See, you're saying him, it's a him now. It's a... You just hit me. Eliza, let go of me. I'm looking, I'm looking. You've never hit me. When he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he doesn't know what I lack or how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am as I am. He's happy to see me. Every time, every day. Now, I can either save him or let him die. I'm leaving. I have to leave. I have to leave. Please stop. Listen to me. Just listen to me. I have to go. I have to. I'm leaving now because this, Eliza, this is very important to me. This is a second chance for me. So Giles is about to storm out and she's pulling on him and he turns on her and yells at her, Eliza, it's not even human. And she signs back to him. And if we do nothing, what are we? But the dealing with his crush being taken away from him prompts him to go to Eliza and say, yes, I will help you. I have no one in my life. You're who I have. What do you need? Yeah, this world isn't working. Let's work with yours. I have no one. And you are the only person that I can talk to. Now, whatever this thing is, you need it. So, you just tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. This place is horrible. 
this place is horrible. Let's burn it to the ground. Yay. Uh, so we have Eliza and Giles, and then eventually Zelda teaming up to get our amphibian monster out of the terrible government facility. Oh, we have not spoken about the scientist slash Russian spy enough slash at all. Dimitri, yes, yes. Dimitri is amazing, and I love him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Hoxtetler. Hoxtetler, yes. He has been standing up for the rights of our Doug Jones monster. Mm-hmm. Every time Michael Shannon's like, I want to vivisect him and see how he works. He's like, no, you'll you'll learn more about him alive. Keep him alive. Why is he hurt? Why did you hurt him? Uh, just standing up for whatever he can, given the opportunity, uh, to the point where he fights with a five-star general. Yeah. Sir, we need to get him back in the water. See, these scientists, they're like artists, sir. They fall in love with their plaything. Now, right here, see, along the middle... This creature has a thick jointed cartilage that separates primary and secondary lungs. Am I explaining this correctly, Bob? Yes, but we have been it able to It makes the x-rays inconclusive. In principle, sir, yes. Now, I believe if we want to get an edge on the Soviets, mm. we need to vivisect this no, thing. No, no. Take it apart. No. Learn how it works. No, that would defeat the purpose. Sir, he's passed out. Please. Put him in the tank. Let him pressurize. General Hoyt, sir. You cannot, under any circumstance, kill this creature. Count these stars with me, son. There are five of them. Means I can do whatever the hell I want. Now, you want to plead your case? I'll listen to it. But at the end of the day, it is my damn decision. Oh, um, some of the dialogue in that scene. Oh, some of the dialogue. Look, we don't, we have so much to learn from him. There's so much more for us to know. And he says, we don't want to know. We just want to make sure the Russians don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. drop the ball on that. And I was so happy to see an unexpected unexpected plot line with Russian spies. When we had Russian spies, I was like, oh, they're going to be cartoony evil characters. And No, I was wrong. I was so, so wrong. And uh, it was a lovely subplot and he was a lovely character. Yeah. Torn between, another person torn between two worlds, torn between his homeland, torn between his new country and this ethics of killing this creature. This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. So are the Soviets, the gooks. And we still kill them, don't we? The bottom line is, this isn't a petting zoo. And I don't want to be in this shithole any longer than need be. Do you? Bob. Do you? No, I don't. Yeah. That five-star general has that line. Show some decency. And the guy said, decency is a commodity. It's what we sell. And we sell it because it's very seldom used. When is a man done, sir, proving himself a good man, a decent man? Decent? A man has the decency not to fuck up. Now, that's one thing. That's real decent up. But the other kind of decency, it doesn't really matter. We sell it, but it's an export. We sell it because we don't use it. 36 hours from now, this entire episode will be over. And so will you. 
Our universe will have a hole in it with your outline, and you will have moved on to an alternate universe, a universe of shit. You'll be lost to civilization, and you will be unborn, unmade, and undone. That ties back into Fido. Like, here's this perfect, perfect world, perfect world, perfect world, perfect world that's run by this corporation that is evil as fuck. And if you don't go with them, mm-hmm. they'll throw you out into the zombie land. Mm-hmm. You'll be cast out. If you don't tell, if you aren't exactly how you, we want you to be, you're out. It's the same fucking thing. <sighs> Men. Men. I'm going to take a moment thinking about how hot Carrie Ann Moss is. Mm-hmm. I feel better now. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that's. That's everyone we have on our ragtag team. We have an immigrant, an elder gay, a black woman, and we are going to get the fish man out. And I should mention here that initially, just like Giles, Zelda is not on board with this plan either. She actually catches Eliza mid-scheme. You know, there's Eliza escaping the building with the fish man in the big laundry basket thing to sneak him out in a laundry truck, and she throws herself in front of the car. Are you out of your mind? Don't do this, Eliza. Don't do this. But unlike Giles, who needed this whole deconstructive incident that imploded his whole world, Zelda has to make a split-second decision, and in that split second, she decides to turn her back on this company and what is quote-unquote right in order to help her friend. Oh, woman, we gonna burn in hell. Come on, push. Push! Uh, and we get to see uh, Giles's artistry used for for good. He paints a van. He makes it look like a laundry van. He starts forging credentials. He gets out his butterscotch tie. <laughs> oh, that was so cute. He was so, like, where the toupee now? Where the toupee now? Where the toupee now? Where the toupee? My fifty four, my fifty seven. So obsessed with them, but it was sweet. It was very sweet. And the way he holds up the different sweaters, they're the exact same sweater in two different colors. And he's like, "But is this one better for our spy work?" And Eliza like. Give some kind feedback, and it's not played as a joke. He's genuinely this, like I don't know how to contribute. No, he's so adorable. Just, he's wonderful. It's a wonderful performance. So, so, so layered and sweet. And they concoct this plan to get the fish men out, which they do, and it's absolutely baffling the people in charge. And you're hearing all these estimations, like oh, we're assuming it was a team of you know at least ten operatives, highly trained. Well, Dimitri finds Eliza, and he's like, "Who do you work for?" and she doesn't work for anyone. She's doing the for the damn humanity of it. And he just gives her the keys. And he's like, wait, you need this much salt. The salinity has to be between five and 8%. <laughs> let me, let me get you whatever you're supposed to put in the bath. Here's his teddy bear. <laughs> right. Here's his teddy bear. And Zelda eventually decides she's going to help Eliza clocks her out. So she has plausible deniability mm-hmm. and helps get uh, the fish man in the cart into the laundry van. Yeah. And she's not on board at first either. She catches her in the act and she, she does what she can she, to stop her, but realizes like, fuck all this, fuck all this. She's, she's right. trying to do it in a, in a way that would save them both from harm mm-hmm. uh, because she understands their, their status uh, in the world and in that company. Yeah. 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 But what I think is great is that they're flying under the radar because no one will ever think of them because they're nothing. Because they're nothing. Nobody's even suspected, not even looking at them because they're nothing. I shouldn't have said I love that, but just the layers of the film. 
Right, 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 right. They're trivial. And that's not my word. That's his. Well, in the in the scene where Michael Shannon says God is made in his likeness or whatever, looks most like God in the room. He also explains the Bible to Zelda because I'm sure a black woman in the 60s doesn't know any Bible stories and certainly not one where her middle name is from. No siblings, Zelda? No, sir. That's not common, is it, for your people? My mama died after me. After I was born. What does that D stand for? Uh, Delilah, sir. On account of the Bible. Delilah, she betrayed Samson. Lulled him to sleep. Cut his hair. Philistines tortured him, humiliated him. Burned his eyes out. Yes, my mama didn't read the good book close enough. And it turns out against her in that last scene, those last scenes, those last scenes got up against the wall with the gun and the stinky fingers and he's telling her the rest of the Samson story. I'm sorry, sir. If I, if I knew anything, I would surely tell you. That story about Samson. I never told you how it ends. After the Philistines torture him and blind him, Samson asked God for the strength he needs. Last minute he is spared, and the Lord gives him his strength back one last time. And he holds the columns of the temple with his powerful arms, and he crushes them. He dies, but he gets every single one of those motherfuckers. That is his will. Now, do you know what that particular story means for us, Delilah? It means if you know something you're not telling me, you're gonna tell me. Either before or after I bring this particular temple down upon our heads. And her fucking husband, the fucking husband who has- Useless husband! Useless husband! Fuck him! Of course your back hurts. Her back hurts too. She works extremely hard. Fuck you. At night, yeah. Fucking door. Yeah, answer the door. Hasn't said five words to her in 10 years or whatever. She's like, hardly ever speaks for her, thanks her, anything. Rats her out in one second. Gal stole that thing right out the lab. Whatever it is. New girl took it. I heard my wife. Talking on the phone about it. Thank you very much, Mr. Fuller, for your assistance. What have you done? Tell him. I got a warner. He's going after her. You will do no such thing, woman. Why are you worried about her? She broke the law. Shut up, Brewster. You shut up. For years you don't talk. Now you can't shut your mouth. Damn you, Brewster. Useless husband, throw him out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we, we establish that he's uh his uselessness is tied to his willingness to sell her out. Yeah. Like he's mm, yeah. he's a he's a sellout to the the, she, the monster. She's trivial at home too. She's there to make food, clean up, tend to my needs. 
But she does successfully warn Eliza that she has to get the fishman out. Because they're coming. They're coming. Well, I didn't understand. This is the thing. Okay. They kept talking about the salinity of the water and everything and how they have to send him out to sea at the end. Like, Did they get him out of a river? Maybe it was right at the end of like the delta at the end of the Amazon. It doesn't matter because it's magical realism. Stuff like that doesn't matter as much. Also, he can heal his own wounds. Maybe he can like change salinity. Oh, yeah. He's magic. He's also magic. He's He's also magic. He's all the way magic. So when he accidentally scratches Giles and eats Giles' cat, he heals Giles' scratch and he touches the top of his head and his hair starts to grow back. Not right away. Not right away. It's like the next day. All his scars are gone. He wakes up with his head of hair and he's obsessed with his hair for the rest of the movie, which is And he yanks it like like Christopher Walken yanks his hair. And I'm going, it's the thing that you hate so much that you just want dead is the solution to all of your problems, Michael Shannon. He could heal your fingers. He could have at any point stopped taking a closer look at this thing that he found so offensive because of what it looked like, because of what it sounded like, because it didn't fit into what his little system said the way things should be. At any point, he could have turned on that. He could have looked, seen the greater picture of things and seen that the system that he's given his life to is, is, is broken, is beyond broken. It's a lie. It's, it's already turned on him. And instead of turning on the system, he continues to persecute Eliza and the creature, and his salvation was right there in his grasp. All these other characters in, in this movie, they've, they all come to this point where they have to make a decision regarding this situation, and when they're all pushed up against the wall, and they're pushed up at the edge of the cliff, and they have to make a decision, because they can't go back, and they can only go forward, are they going to drop or are they going to fly? Instead, Michael Shannon chooses to do neither, and is destroyed. I hadn't even thought about his ability to heal the fingers. Of course, of course. He could have. He could have, but you're being so fucking, you're blind. You keep talking about your image of God because it has to look like you. You don't see it when it's right fucking in front of you. Well, also, when we when we first met our, our fishman hero, we learned that he was revered as a god in the Amazon and that the locals would give him offerings. Flower. Uh, Flowers. Him flowers. <laughs> oh, the other scene that people hate that makes me very angry. The fantasy musical number. No, I loved it because, I mean, especially with Guillermo del Toro to, to take this mute character and to bring her into this fantasy world. We do a good job setting it up. We, we see her tap dancing down the hall in whatever real life mode uh, earlier in the film mm-hmm. and the love for old Hollywood musicals is shared between her and Giles. They watch them on his TV repeatedly mm-hmm. and they speak about them knowledgeably. Mm-hmm. So to then have a fantasy where she can fully express herself and the like scale of her love eh, scales um, <laughs> did not, did not bother me at all. Me either. I thought it was gorgeous. Cause what you also said, the thing that you left out is that one of her other connections with the, the creature is music. It's music. Yes. She plays him music all the time and he loves music. So they're communicating in sign and through music. And so it makes sense that she's, it's coming up to the time where she's going to have to let him go because Frosty can't stay. Harry can't stay with the Hendersons. And, uh, and she's just trying to say out loud. Andre's got to go back to the ocean. Same with Free Willy. And she's actually speaking the words are loud to the best of her ability. And it segues into this musical number. And what it did for me, I'm like, ah, uh, you do Shakespeare, right? Yes. The difference between verse and prose. Yeah. The level of emotion is too much for normal speech. It's been elevated. I'm gonna, it's I'm been gonna... elevated into goddamn song because my emotions are too powerful for just words alone. 
I loved it. I thought it was gorgeous. I, people just like, it's just stupid and corny. I'm like, it is not. It's not. We've already established magical realism going into a, a fantasy where she could fully express herself is fine. Not not to say that people who use ASL can't fully express themselves, but uh, to use something she didn't previously have available. Right. But even ASL wasn't going to cover it either. Like, no, it has the to language be a that she had full on, full on dance number. Yeah. With a band. With a band. And a gorgeous dress. Whew. Since it's the 500 pound, <laughs> the 800 pound fish in the room, talk about the famous section that everybody go on about the fish fucking. There was so little fish fucking. There was gorgeous, loving scenes. We got one standing in a bathtub, and then we got one after she makes a little fish tank of her bathroom. Yeah, she fills up. The, she fills up the whole. It's the opening scene. That's the, the shot. The apartment is. She floods as much as she can of her apartment to be with him in in his element for a change. And her sexuality in this movie is tied to water, always. And it's just floods. It, it's beautifully shot, magical. It's gorgeous. And. You don't see humping. You don't see anything. They're just floating. They're just floating. It's erotic. There's barely, there's barely caressing. It's it's extremely, extremely PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just love. I just love it. Just like the and the water's just pouring out. It's pouring out into the theater. <laughs> it starts raining down into theater. She lives. She lives above the the theater owner landlord comes up to complain. Gets Giles. Giles goes into Eliza's apartment. It's raining in my theater. I've got four paying customers tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but then when he finally opens the door it's like ah and there's come everywhere uh-huh he's not shocked he's then just okay and i would be remiss at this point not to mention that when both giles R- richard jenkins and zelda find out that it's not just platonic love going on between eliza and the creature they're both very accepting they're both very happy about it there's a moment of shock, and then they go, okay. Stop looking like that. What happened? Why? How? How? Does he have a... I think that's important just to note that these two people who are outcasts in this society because of their sexuality and the color of their skin, who are therefore more likely to realize that there's something fundamentally wrong with the system, are able to recognize love for what it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that tracks. But again, it's all these desperate people coming together, not just to topple a tyrant. I mean, talk about the disabled, people of color, queers, immigrants, scientists, women, banding together, not just to topple a tyrant, they're toppling a tyrant in the name of untraditional love. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's about as queer as fuck as you can get. Absolutely. Oh, Oh, so the entire time, Dimitri knows that he's on thin ice with his spies, his spy buddies. It starts out pretty well. He can meet him in a restaurant. It's fine. And then he starts, like, carrying a gun with him. So when we're, oh, wait, no, we skipped my other other favorite. So many visual metaphors I want to talk about. Um, 
in our escape from the the NASA Stargate building, Giles hits the new Cadillac with his laundry van. So our Michael Shannon monster, who has damaged fingers, also has a damaged car to match. Yeah. The symbol of success. Every successful businessman owns a Cadillac. We're in the whole shopping center. The yeah. genuine chrome. Uh-huh. And you have to have the aqua one. Uh, I'm sorry, the teal one, because that's the teal. Of success. It's not green. It's teal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, again, another thing taken away from Michael Shannon. But the thing is, it's not just a car. This car, as the salesman pointed out, it's, it's, it's the symbol of success. Every successful businessman has it. So it's a symbol of everything that he sees himself as. It's not just his business, his job, but it's his. It's symbolic of him as a man and his masculinity and as an American and a member of this, working for this government, and all of it is fucking toxic. And it all gets taken away like that. The shiny veneer of the car, gone, totaled, and all he's left is with this rot that's eating him alive from the inside. There's a facade. There's a facade. Yeah. It's damaged now. So, Dimitri, things have been going poorly, and for his final Russian spy meetup, his bosses show up to shoot him, and one of them gets him in the gut, and another one gets him in the face, like Jonah Hex, right in the face. But Michael Shannon's on this rampage to get his fish asset back, shoots the other Russian spies, and then it does the most violent, and granted, I did not figure this one out. Uh, my, my partner Adam did drags the spy by the hole in his face because it's a fucking fish hook. He fish hooked him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love this movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. And since we're getting towards the end, you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, of course. I haven't. Oh, okay. Damn it. But like, spoil away. It's on me. Okay, um, well, I can, I can... It's a million years old. And it doesn't matter because it's, it's the magical realism of the end. Like, it's these two worlds are blending. This horrific war world that she lives in with her father and this magical I've world. I've seen the first family. half hour of Pan's Labyrinth. I don't remember what interrupted me. So I remember that. And the sense of texture was really interesting in that. And so the little girl, Ophelia. Yeah. Which works as Ophelia and as a female Orpheus. Ooh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. She's killed. She dies. Tragically in this whole war thing. And the rest of the movie is like this kind of sugarcoatery. What some would say is just like, and then she descended and became the queen of the fairies, and it's her living among her people now because she thought she descended from fairies, and now she's with them. I have to believe that that's what happened because I can't accept the other ending. Like the, the real ending, I cannot accept it. Like I can't spend all that time with this beautiful girl and let her die like this. Yeah. I'm going to believe that she is the queen of the fairies because that's what magical realism is about. Yes. And this ending, a lot of people say that it's too sugarcoated, too sugarcoated, and too Hollywood and too mainstream. I have to say, it's this is the opposite. I don't think what we saw in the movie is what happened. I am, I am interested to talk about this with you because I think we did a good Chekhov's gun. We spoke about the scars that Eliza has on her neck mm -hmm. in the really scary, almost rape scene with Michael Shannon. He says, "Oh, well, those scars. You haven't been able to speak since you were an infant. It must have damaged your voice box." When they found you by the river. And it turns out they're not scars; they're gills. But what I was going to say is that this whole movie, unlike Pan's Labyrinth, is being framed as a story. It's being told to us by Richard Jenkins. And he's even saying, I don't know how to tell you this story, but if I tell you the story, I'm going to have to tell you like this. Oh, don't do that. I was enjoying it as is. Again, but it's my heart goes out. I'm like, I don't, really don't think that that's what happened. I don't think. 
There's no way, because there's no way of here of knowing. We finally get the white man to call out the amphibian man as a god. He heals his own bullet wounds and and is impervious and and then we can have the that small victory of the white man realizing he's wrong. Oh, I think that part happened. Okay. I I, I don't think she lived because there's no way of Richard Jenkins to know. There's no way he would have known. It all happened under the water. They didn't come back. They didn't see them waving as they swam away. Oh, and the only feedback he had on his art earlier was to make them happier. Fucking A, Patrick. I know. Now I'm sad. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I blame you. Sorry. The magic can't stay. Never can. No, the magic can't stay. It never can. Them's the rules. But that movie didn't win an Academy Award, did it? This movie did. (laughs) (laughs) But I just like that that choice is there. Because once that crept into my head, I was like, oh, fuck. Fuck." Yeah, it just breaks it. Goes to because this is a, a really contrite, everything wrapped up, happy ending, which is odd for Del Toro. It's normally a lot sadder than that. Uh, oh. Or at least mixed. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know if I should be happy, sad about this, or I should be sad, happy. So I got to be happy, sad for this. Like, okay, she left all of her friends behind, but she's with her people now. That's what I have to go with. I mean, I get, but just, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I've ruined your day. <laughs> I'm making a face. Everyone needs to know I'm making a face. I know that. I, I have not, and I'm looking Fine. away because I'm withering. <laughs> Look what you did. Oh. Uh, okay. Did I did I get to talk about all my visual metaphors? We got we got the fish hook, we got the eggs, we got the jello, we got the car. We got the butterscotch tie. <laughs> yeah, his his performance, it just it reminds me of my my elder gay friends. It just reminded me of people I knew. It was hard to watch. Because it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't have to be sassy. He didn't have one-liners. He didn't have to do that all the time. He didn't have to throw shade. Just a normal dude who happens to be gay. Normal dude who happens to be gay. And similarly, like I said, I was waiting for some sassy black lady moments. And we didn't get them. Not to say he didn't have a few singers. (laughs) Oh, his scene with the creature. Are you alone? Were you always alone? Have you always been alone? Did you ever have someone? Do you know what happened to you? Do you? Because I don't. I don't know what happened to me. I I don't know. I look in the mirror and the only thing that I recognize are these eyes. And this old man's face. Sometimes I think I was either born too early or too late for my life. Maybe we're both just relics. Oh, the other thing. When he first finds out about the creature, when Eliza tells him about the creature, he's like, uh, you know, Eliza, one time I went to Coney Island and I got to see a mermaid, but it turned out to be like a midget on a roller skates or something like that. And I was like, and then the mermaid ate my coworker in this underground facility that I used to work <laughs> at. <laughs> I have I have paid the dollar to look in the box at Coney Island and see the the thing that's I think it's a chicken sewn to a, a fish. Yeah. Uh I've I've paid the dollar to see that. Richard Jenkins is also in Cabin in the Woods. Ah, Cabin in the Woods. How did that take me so long to get there? Of course he saw the mermaid. Good thing he saw the mermaid and not the merman. Because then he'd be dead. Because then he'd be dead, just like Josh (laughs) Lyman. What's his name? Bradley Whitford. They also styled one of our side characters to look a lot like Bradley Whitford in Cabin in the Woods. So for a moment, I was like, is it? Oh, it's not. Oh, do you know who that is? I don't. 
the other the other assistant whose name I don't know. They never really said his name, but he was he's always on. He's the side. Not he's the guy who used to be the boss. Yeah. Of that thing until Strickland came in. Oh, by the way, what's in a name? Um, Michael Shannon's character's name Strickland. Strict land. Strict. Well, GDT has never been subtle. Uh, no. to, to your point about uh, Pan's Labyrinth, it's no coincidence that he's pale and a man. Uh, but yeah, but that guy who played the sidekick with the glasses, he was in Cube. Oh shit! Yeah, I missed that entirely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and it was weird. I just happened to watch an episode of Murdoch Mysteries. I'm like, oh my god, they're listening. The listeners are going, oh my god, Murdoch Mysteries, because he was on this episode I just saw today. I'm like, eh, he's everywhere because this movie shot in Canada. Ha. <laughs> And when the fires of the chocolate factory cleared, there was Roby. <laughs> oh, and then her hair is going to smell like burnt chocolate until she washes it next time. <laughs> burnt chocolate and fish. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah. That. That's it. That's it. I don't really know where else to go. But I think we've kind of done it. But there's so much to I talk think so. about. You can't, like, if you dismissed this movie, as just being creature from the Black Lagoon, where he gets the girl, you have missed the boat. Missed it entirely, and especially with the uh, amount of reactions I had heard from people I knew about fish fucking, I was ready to go on a tirade about how I suspect Guillermo del Toro grew up on a lot of uh, hentai. He absolutely has a monster fetish, and I'm happy to talk about that at length another time. But I don't think that applies to this movie or why it was made. I mean, he did say he uh, when he was six years old when he saw. It, the creature from the Black Lagoon. He was like, "Well, why doesn't he get the girlfriend? Why doesn't he get the girl?" The creature because he's Black a representation of the other. Yay! Right, and so yeah, again, queerness right there. <laughs> queerness. Well, queerness and racism. Yeah. Well, yes, I was like in a broader sense yes. queer yes, in the yes, other yes. sort of way. In the same way, a Fido was comes in, and people say, "Why didn't you find anything queer to talk about in Fido?" I said, hmm. "Well, there's no gay in it." But it's queer. It's queer. Yes. Same thing. But it seems so obvious. Like, well, the, this this magical gay creature comes in and saves the world. Seemed a bit on the nose. Try on the nose and try it the way. They, but here it's different. Like this magical creature comes in and sets the world on fire. So the world. Some of it needed to burn down. Exactly. Exactly. It, well, the people that needed it, that needed out of that world, got out of it. Yeah. Whatever shell they were in is broken, and they're not going back. Nope. And hooray for them. And we're back to eggs. And we're back to eggs. <laughs> Back to eggs. Back to eggs. Back. <laughs> the omelet bob backed. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, The Shape of Water. Thank you very much, Maya Murphy, for joining me. I'd ask what you were up to, but. <laughs> so little. Um, I post cat pictures on my Instagram. If you want to see the cat pictures, follow me at Blonde and Nerdy. Yes, good, good, good. And it's blonde and nerdy. Blonde and yeah, blonde, blonde and nerdy. Uh, it's not blonde and nerdy because uh, I think someone else had that. Bitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll fight them one but day. You know what? You got the more marketable one. You got the more marketable blonde and nerdy, so it's going to be better. No, it, it reminds me of the good the and fruity, good and plain. Because you're both of those things. Hi, those are the things I am. <laughs> Good fruity. Yeah, Maya, explain yourself. Uh, I don't know. I have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't fed him to Doug Jones yet. Oh no, 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 no! Please, that's like getting on the cat phone. Okay, she she brought the Doug Jones. Got Doug Jones. <laughs> Only one of the cats get eaten. Maybe, maybe Bart Pand- will be fine. Pandora, 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 Pandora. Pandora. Yep. Well, she shouldn't have opened that box. Start hissing at him. No, she just left him alone. Okay, but then don't put catnip in Pandora's box. Like, you know, she's going to get into it. Well, of course, if it's a giant fish, she's like, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Wait, this is a role reversal here. Uh, oh, does this fish man make us reverse roles? Well, That's interesting. Well, 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 you're right, the fish is a cat. <laughs> well done. Well done. Hey, and if you enjoy listening to me and my talk, we also do this once a month over on Patreon talking about Friday the 13th, the series. I have nothing to say. Neither. There's nothing else to say. So I did it. We got there. <laughs> we got there. My Murphy, happy pride. Happy Pride. If I told you about her, what would I say? That they lived happily ever after? I believe they did. That they were in love? That they remained in love? I'm sure that's true. But when I think of her, of Eliza, the only thing that comes to mind is a poem whispered by someone in love hundreds of years ago, unable to perceive the shape of you. I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. So thank you once again to Maya Murphy. Maya Murphy, thank you very much. She's awesome. I thank you. Always, always a pleasure to have you on the show. If you enjoyed Maya Murphy, you should be sure to check her out on her show, her series rather, 20th Century Vampire Hunter, which is available on Amazon. Or she's always helping me in my little curious, in my very curious curious shop over on Patreon on Damn You Uncle Lewis. But we're not done yet. No, 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 no. Sit your butt back down because we need to have a little talk. Because, like I said, we recorded this session 10 days ago. And as I was editing it and spending more time with it, because, you know, I took part in the blackout last week, so this episode's coming out later than usual, I got to think, I spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of things. And we're going to start with the movie, things that we did not talk about in this discussion because they weren't thoughts in my head yet. The character of Strickland, Michael Shannon's character, he is a monster, absolutely to the core. Yet, he's a monster that's been created by something bigger. This whole ideal, the American dream of that era, the, you know, the whole idea of the American dream and what that meant to someone like that. Strickland's entire essence was based on a system that like him was rotting from the inside a system that still is rotting on the inside you can slap a coat of paint on it you can put some flags on it you can put some stars and bars and sell wholesome american pie and white picket fences but it turns out that's something they're selling and all of our Characters in this, all of our hero characters, they all have this moment of reckoning where they have to take a look at their life and society and where they fit in it and the promises that that society made to them and that society's laws. They all have that moment when they take that closer look at that world around them. They realize that it's wrong and they fight back. And that's exactly where we are today. 
The coronavirus, if you want to put a good spin on it, created the opportunity for a perfect storm. And the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police was that last straw in a string of murders by police, which should have been last straws. Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Tamer Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Philandra Castile, so many others. Did it not just spark a fire in one community or two communities? Not even a nationwide reaction. It has been a global reaction to the rot that is in our system. And now that the lie has been exposed, there's no going back. Putting a Band-Aid on it or a coat of paint or, or words and thoughts and prayers are no longer acceptable. So this inherent centuries-long flaw in the American system has got to be burned out. And if it can't be burned out, the whole thing's got to go at this point. We're promised equal justice for all. And until that is made true, we cannot accept anything less. So much like the characters in the movie, for privileged white people like myself, that edge of the cliff moment has come. We can either be part of the problem. Scratch that. We can either continue to be part of the problem or we can be part of the solution. So I urge you, if you haven't already, please get active and do not stay silent. There's a link in the show notes to blacklivesmatter.org. There's all sorts of resources in there on how you can be part of the solution. Protest. Donate to the bail funds or to the NAACP. Do some reading. Get out of your comfort zone. And my theme for this episode, and actually for all of Pride Month, is look closer. And during the podcast Blackout, I spent a lot of time looking closer and doing a lot of soul searching and introspection. And I have to tell you, I do not like what I see. As privileged white people, we have been indoctrinated into a system that has hate as one of its core values. It may not always be open and upfront, but it's there. It's in the subtext, as we actors like to say. And racism isn't something you're born with. It's something you're learned. It's something that you learn. And we've been getting lessons for a whole lifetime. So, so I invite you to look closer at yourself. See where those spots of rot are. Start to root them out. The first way to do that is to identify them. I just erased a whole section about my personal soul-searching journey that I was on this weekend, but I decided this is not the time to make this all about me. This will come up this month. Because the one thing I'm learning about this Pride Month is that I cannot feel pride about anything and mostly about myself until I can be honest with myself, until I'm able to... Just, just see how much I've been complicit with the problem by staying silent about racism when I see it in others and in myself until I root it out, until you root it out to spot the problem spots and identify them and recognize them and own them then you can start to fix them and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be pretty but it's your choice I don't feel like you can be part of the solution until you fix the problems within.
Black lives matter. It's a simple truth. It's a simple core truth. And it's one that has been actively ignored for far too long. So ask yourself, can you say Black Lives Matter and really mean it? Or are you just paying lip service because it's what you're supposed to say right now? Because lip service isn't doing anybody any good right now. And as a matter of fact, it's killing people. It's killing black people. Black Lives Matter. This Wednesday, we're going to be hosting a screening of The Shape of Water, which we just talked about, at 8 p.m. on the cast app at bit.ly slash sqsocial. It'll be at 8 p.m. If you haven't seen the movie before, you're going to love it. And if you have seen it before, come see it again and take that closer look. And on Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be watching the Shutter documentary Horror Noir about the history of black horror cinema. Fantastic piece. And next episode, we're going to be joined by trans filmmaker and actor Alan Kelly. And the rest of the month is actually going to be dedicated to talking with queer filmmakers, as well as shining a spotlight on black horror cinema as well. So until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, continue to make the world a better place and a more healthy place and a safer place. So wear a fucking mask, wash your fucking hands, look closer, and Black Lives Matter. for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches! <laughs>